0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good evening. My name's Jeremy. It's good to be here with you guys. I'm not Jeremy Neff. Sorry, you're not so lucky. Uh, My name's Jeremy Hamasu, and I've been tasked with the tough job of uh, not going through one book in a night, but two Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and let me just say, to go through one book feels, and Sam can tell you this, it feels kind of like an injustice to the book, because you got to glaze over a lot of things. To go over two, I almost feel criminal, Um, but we're going to try our best, and we're going to do this. Uh, My hope, my goal, is not that you have an in-depth understanding. My goal is threefold. One, that you'd come away with a, a slightly better understanding of the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Number two... I hope that you see the way that these two books point to Jesus, and they point to Jesus in a pretty cool way. And uh, number three, I just hope that something is said here to, that inspires you to get in and dig into these books um, on your own. So, you know, I was, I was studying for Ecclesiastes in, in this past, they gave me a, several weeks to study for it, and this book just, you know, it just rocked me. I was, I was consumed with it for like, several weeks just reading and reading and reading to the point where I got to a couple days ago, and I was like, whoa, I need to prepare a sermon. I've just been reading all these books. And, and as I was studying for this, I, I realized, man, just studying this one book did me more good than sitting in a hundred different sermons. I would rather study one book, and I'll walk away with more by taking a, a couple weeks to really in-depth study a book. Uh, I get more from that than sitting through a hundred sermons. And so I hope that something that is said here can kind of give you the inspiration to jump in and do it yourself. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this night. Um, We thank you for the people who stacked chairs and prepared uh, the setting here so that we could be here. We thank you for the tithers who pay the people to, to put this type of stuff on, Lord. Thank you for guys like Sam who faithfully just lead worship and help us and nourish us. Uh, But most of all, we thank you for the love and the kindness and your example and just for who you are, God. We ask that in this time you would be glorified, and Father, I do pray, I pray that people would walk away with a better understanding of these books. Lord, I pray that we would see how these things point to Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that your spirit would do a work in us to inspire us to start to dig in on our own, not be spoon-fed. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question, and it's what do you do, okay? What do you do, hypothetically, when they come to you and they invite you to whatever social event that may be, and you know what's going to be going on at the the place, and your spidey senses are telling you, I probably shouldn't be there, but you really want to go, but you know you probably shouldn't, what do you do? Wisdom gives you the answer. What do you do when that person who somebody just desperately, they need someone just to be honest with them once. And they just need somebody to tell them the truth, but everybody just dances around the main things and they don't really be honest with them. And that person comes to you and they say, they ask your opinion and you know you can offend them a little bit, but do what's good for them or you can continue to dance like the rest of them. What do you do? Wisdom gives us the answer. But what I find in life is that typically situations and decisions aren't really that easy. You know, I wish that every decision was, do I tell the truth or do not tell the truth? I, I remember hearing a story, a long, this was probably 10 or 15 years ago now, but I heard a story and I thought, man, what would I do in that situation? You see, there was a lady who loved the Lord and was following the Lord, as far as I know, and she came to the pastor of a church, and she said, hey, I've been struggling big time because 10 years ago, I made a mistake, and I had an affair, and I've just been keeping this all inside, and my husband and nobody knows, and I have a family now. I have kids, and and, and things are going good, and I love the Lord, but I'm struggling because I have this secret What do you do? Wisdom gives us the answer. But sometimes in life, situations, they extend beyond the the realm of moral situations. Sometimes you just get faced with tough decisions that doesn't necessarily have a moral imperative one way or the other. Uh, The child's growing up, and they're a little more dependent upon you than you're comfortable with. And you're left with the decision, do I just do I? Give them tough love and know they might fall on their face? Or do I extend a hand again and possibly be enabling the behavior? I don't know what to do. I just don't know. You see, wisdom gives us those answers. Wisdom is the ability to know the right thing to do in a host of situations, some moral, some not. Wisdom is just understanding the right thing that you need to do. And who doesn't want wisdom? Who doesn't want to know what to do when they approach a really difficult, layered situation? Who doesn't want to be able to divide up the variables and understand the circumstances and make the right decision? We all want that. And it's the reason we love wisdom. And it's the reason we love books like Proverbs. Because Proverbs is just a whole bunch of pieces of wisdom that you can read through It was written by Solomon, and he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, and we love to read Proverbs. I mean, it's prepackaged for us, 31 chapters for 31 days of the month, unless it's February or a couple other months like this. And and I I know multiple times in my life, I might finish going through my devotionals, and I'm finishing up John or wherever, and I'm like, where am I going to go next? Well, probably Proverbs. I don't have to commit to too long. It's one month. It's all practical information. There's not a subject in my life that I'll come up against that Proverbs doesn't touch on in one area or another. And it's great. We love it. But in case you think that Proverbs is just kind of practical information that you can kind of file away in your head, at the, first, at the beginning, the first nine chapters, it does take a much more personal, ter- t- a much more personal tone when in verse 8, you read those two words where he says, my son, my son. I can remember when my, uh, it was a strange birthday. I remember when my dad turned 50, and uh, usually we write cards and stuff and give it to him. And on his 50th birthday, he pulls out of his pocket or wherever, he had three cards, and he gave it to us three boys. And I still remember the title of the card. It was reflections at 50 and he just kind of wrote us a letter kind of the truths that he's learned the things that he's filed away um, as he sees the world at a half a century and he gave it to us to take and to read and to kind of file away and it was just kind of a cool sentiment in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, it's almost that same tone that Solomon is taking with his kid. He says, my son, and it's like he's writing a letter and he's saying, if, if, I can just, if I had just one letter to write to you, those things that I feel are so important that you take and you own for yourself, this is it. And his main thrust, get wisdom. Get wisdom. And how do you do that? In the first chapter, he says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that same offer is extended to us. If you want wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord. So, does that mean if I don't fear the Lord, that I can't get wisdom? Well, yeah. 1 Corinthians has a, a nice chapter on this, and I hope that you, uh, you read it as you go home today. I don't have time to go into it, but 1 Corinthians talks about the, the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And it compares and contrasts the two things. And I'm guessing we're mostly here Christians, so most of us accept the fact that the wisdom of God always trumps over the wisdom of the world. And so when you read through the Bible, or when you read 1 Corinthians, he compares and contrasts this, and it kind of gives us some insight into what Solomon's saying here, because Solomon's saying, if you you want to have wisdom, this godly wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord, and in a sense, you have to see the world as the Lord sees it if you want that godly wisdom. So when we fear God, we're taking a God-colored filter, and we're placing it over the lens of our life. And we're saying, as I make my way through this life, I am choosing, through the fear of the Lord, to see the world the way that God sees it. The world, they choose their worldly wisdom. And these two things come into conflict all the time. How dare you tell me who I can and cannot love, whether it's a boy or a girl? Well, If the filter you have on your lens is selfishly motivated and you take the godly filter and you say that's no longer a topic of discussion, we're getting rid of that, it does become slightly more difficult to make that argument. Or how, how dare you tell me who and what I identify as? This is one I see a lot. I work at a school, a middle school. How dare you tell me how and who I can identify as, whether I'm a boy or a girl? Well, you know, if you take the godly filter and you say this is no longer in play and now I am the sole determiner of my life and the purpose that I find in my life is only the purpose that I give myself, well, it, yeah, it's a difficult, I mean, what did I do? that work am I still on it's a difficult it's a difficult argument to make I think you can still make it but when you take out of the when you take God out of the picture you see the conflict and these two things go at each other all the time and it's the reason in the first the second and third chapter wisdom Solomon personifies wisdom as a woman standing in the streets and she's saying "How, how long How long are you going to continue to walk down this road? How long are you going to continue to ignore my calls? How long are you going to fail to see that there is a better way? And I think the same call that wisdom makes in the book of Proverbs is the same call that wisdom makes to the Rogue Valley today as she stands in the streets and she looks at the situation and she calls out to people and says, how long are you going to continue to walk down this road? How long is it going to take you to see that the decisions you make and the filter of self isn't working? How many generations of kids do we have to mess up? How many addictions do we have to deal with? How many selfishly motivated families do we have to create before we see that there is a better way? Godly wisdom. But the reason why most people won't choose to walk that path well, because Solomon makes it clear, wisdom is never passively acquired. Wisdom is gotten. He says, if you search for it, as you search for silver or gold, if you get after it, if you look for it, if, you, if, if it's the desire of your heart, then you will find it. God will give it to you. But it's never going to be you just walking through life and, oh, I got a bunch of wisdom here. I got a bunch of godly wisdom. It's acquired. But if you acquire it, the blessings... Man, if I could just summarize what he says, he's basically saying you'll be like a person founded on solid ground. You'll be a well-rounded, well-adjusted person, able to uh, approach different circumstances in life and not be moved and not be tossed in the waves. You'll be able to decide and decipher and to just be a whole person. And also... He goes really into depth in chapters 6 and 7 about the way that wisdom will shield you from temptation. And he goes, he talks a lot about the adulterous woman. He says, "Or wisdom will keep you from the adulterous woman. And I just wonder how many men in our church or in the church or whatever need that word. How many people are sidelined In the battle of ministry, because they're too consumed, taking care of their own personal temptations to get out in front, or how many men are unable to lead their families well because they spend all their time trying to wrestle in their mind at how I can lead a family when I still deal with this stuff in my own life. Wisdom is the answer, and it begins with the fear of God. And so Solomon is writing to his son in the first nine chapters, but then we jump to the 10th chapter, and and the the book takes a a shift, it shifts into a different gear, and we read in chapter 10, the verse 1, simple words, simple uh, message, it says the Proverbs of Solomon. And when we move into chapters 10 through about 19, you'll see an increased use of uh, a Hebrew literary style called parallelism parallelism. And you guys know what this is when I tell it to you. It's where an author will say something, and then he'll say it again in a slightly different way, as if to emphasize the first point, okay? Or he'll say something, and then he'll say the opposite. He'll contrast it with something. So let me give you an, uh, an example. Proverbs 17, 28 is a good example of parallelism. Uh, he says, even a fool, even a fool, when he holds his Excuse me. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. He says something, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed as a man of understanding. He says kind of the same thing in a slightly different way, as if to make the first point. And those are all throughout uh, Proverbs. Uh, here's an antithetical parallelism. Uh, the mouth of the righteous is a well of life. He says something, and then he contrasts it here. Uh, but the violence covers. But violence covers the mouth of the wicked. So it's a compare and contrast. So you see the parallelism, and that's a Hebrew literary style, and they use it a lot in uh, the book of Proverbs, and you see it a lot, especially in chapters 10 through 19. It filters through the rest of the book, but you see a lot of it there. And if I were to try to outline the book for you completely, or these chapters, you would think I was bipolar, because anybody that's read Proverbs knows how it jumps from topic to topic to topic to topic, and if you read outlines of how uh, this book is outlined, if people try to outline it, you'll find that all the outlines are really different because it's a very difficult book to outline. But if I can pull a theme that I see all throughout chapters 10 through 19, I see this one thing repeated over and over. It's the comparison of righteousness and wickedness or the comparison of a person who does what's right and who does what's wrong. And I got to say, as a a bunch of Wednesday-nighters, it's easy to sit here and say, You know, I'm generally a person who does what's right, but I think the warning of Solomon to us today would be that every one of us in this room will be faced with a situation where it's far more expedient to do what's wrong than what's right. We'll all be faced with a situation where maybe it's far easier to do what's wrong than what's right. And wise is the person who makes up their mind and says, hey, I'm committed to doing what's right, even if it's difficult, even if one little number change can get me $2,000 back on my tax returns, or even if the sharing of one little private secret can get me that friend whose affections I've wanted for so long, or even if one little text can satisfy those sinful desires that have been bouncing around in my mind for some time. Every one of us will be faced at some point in our lives, probably sooner rather than later, where there will be a situation where you, in that moment, will find it more expedient or easier to do what's wrong. And we got to make up our minds, and wise is the person who makes up their minds and says, I'm going to do what's right no matter what. I'm going to be that godly, wise person who's committed to doing what's right. And what you find and what Solomon says, the case he makes, is you'll end up far ahead because of it. Maybe not in that moment, but because of, it's like the quote, two roads diverged in the woods, I took the road, less travel, and it's made all the difference. You see, while the situation, a situation might arise where it's not very expedient to do it, and you might be taken a step back, more often than not, the person who chooses to do what's right is the person who finds themselves doing well in life down the road. Maybe not always, but more often than not, they will. And so I pray for us that we would be people who choose to do what's right. And while I feel I'm doing a terrible injustice to the 10th through the 19th chapter of the book, we're going to move on to chapter 20, and there's another subtle change. You see, while there is parallelism that continues through the rest of the book, we see an increased use of something called aphorisms. And we know what aphorisms are. They're short, pithy, uh, concise sayings designed for impact, um, usually used to preserve wisdom from one generation to the next. Example, please. <laughs> who, hasn't re- who doesn't remember their dad saying this? Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, uh, There's aphorisms that are wrong with foolish wisdom, but we've all heard the saying, uh, God helps those. Who help themselves, and nothing is further from the truth. And if your spidey senses didn't start going crazy right there, then you need to listen a little closer. Uh, but we know what aphorisms are, and as the end of the of Proverbs comes around, he uses those far more. Um, but one of the things I want to make sure we understand for Proverbs is, uh, and this sounds kind of this is going to be counterintuitive, but I'm just going to say it anyways. Uh, we often read Proverbs slightly wrong. This is wisdom literature. And wisdom, you can't take one situation and apply it to every situation. Um, Situations have variables in them. And when you come to Proverbs and you read this parallelism or you read the aphorisms, understand that Proverbs are not promises. They're much more like probabilities. Okay, Proverbs are not promises. They're much more like probabilities. So, you know, when I was young, and let me me make my case. When I was young, I used to struggle because I would read verses like... uh, what was it? Um, If you honor your mother and father, it'll go well with you, and you'll have many years on the earth. And I used to think, what about my friend who, you know, they love the Lord, but they died in a car wreck. Well, generally, if you honor your parents, you will be the type of person who has many good years on this earth, but God is still sovereign, and he still has the right to cut in and say, I have a different plan here. But when you read the Proverbs, you can count that the wisdom is strong enough that generally, if you're that type of person that honors your parents, you're going to have a lot of years. Let me give you another example. Um, Raise up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart. That's a great verse. Verse. But I wonder how many people went through their life and they raised, they did the best they can, could and, the, and they, they raised the kid to follow the Lord and they, and they taught them the Bible and they just did a lot of great things. But that child had a choice. They had free will too. And they w- chose to walk in their own way and do their own thing. And maybe they lived the rest of their life like that. Generally speaking, if you raise up a child in the way they should go, they're not gonna depart at the end. But sometimes, sometimes, people have a choice. And so when you read Proverbs, understand that these are not promises, but they are probabilities. And they're beautiful probabilities. And they're beautiful to read. And they will challenge you and inspire you. I, I mean, even studying for this, I found myself inspiring, inspired. Uh, coming across verses like, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He'll stand before kings. I was like, man. Man. I'm ready to get up and go to work tomorrow. Let's do this, you know? Uh, uh, or a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Love that. And, and I found that the Proverbs are challenging. A lot of them challenge me. You know, yesterday I was so tired and the last thing I wanted to do was study. It was the, literally the last thing in the world. And then I finally sat down and I cracked open the book of Proverbs and I came across, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. And I went, ah. I better study. <laughs> Challenges me, and they're witty, and they're funny. The proverbs. I mean, who doesn't chuckle a bit when they read, "As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly." And I think, man, that's like my dating life. You know, I, I just, you know, and I chuckle a bit. And they're witty, and they're insightful. Where where there's no vision, the people perish. You know, they give you insight, and they're beautiful. And I just hope that as you guys go home and hopefully pick up the book and read through it on your own, that you'll find your own self and your own souls challenged, inspired, and and laugh a little bit and cry a little bit. But the beautiful thing about Proverbs, I think this is the most beautiful thing, is that it points to Jesus, who is wisdom. And I'm not just saying that. 1 Corinthians, same chapter I referred to that I hope you guys will read, reads this. Verse 30, and because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Well, the first nine chapters of Proverbs kind of describe wisdom, and the, the rest of the book kind of shows the manifestations of wisdom. You have the incarnation of wisdom in Jesus Christ. And as you look to him, understand that God has not only given us a book about wisdom, but he's given us an example of wisdom that we can look at. Jesus Christ, the only one who walked this planet and who in every situation was able to divide and decide what exactly was the right thing to do and walked in perfect wisdom his entire life. That was Jesus. And what we find when we look at his life is the wisdom of God is far different from the wisdom of the world for he chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to confound the strong, and he chose the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. It's all backwards. It's all different. And so may we read Proverbs and learn of wisdom, but may we also look at Jesus and see wisdom played out before us. And so as we find ourselves moving past Proverbs, we step into Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, man, I feel like I'm doing the worst injustice to this, but I'm going to try to do this in about 10 or 15 minutes to you guys. Uh, Ecclesiastes, we get a bunch of insight right at the beginning of the book. The first verse of the first chapter says this, the words of Koheleth, as some of your translations read. Or if you switch that into English, you'll read the words of the preacher. Or if you change that into Greek or Latin, you'll come up with the words of Ecclesiastes from where we get the name of the book. And many people think that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Uh, I tend to lean that direction, although there's some uh, scholarship that suggests it may have been somebody taking on the Solomonic mantle, if you would, speaking from his standpoint, but we're not going to get into that. What I will say this, or what we'll do is this, Uh, we'll simply refer to the author as the preacher, I think we can all agree on that, and I think everyone would agree on that. And so we have this preacher here, and and you get the theme in the second verse of the first chapter. And you know in Hebrew literature, uh, if they want to make a point, they'll say the same word twice. So they'll never say it was very bad. They'll say it was bad, bad. (laughs) That's how it goes. And we get to the second verse in the first chapter, and this is what we read. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times. And off the top of my head, I can't think of any other time in the Bible that an author makes a point that strong by saying five times I'm going to repeat this word. And in fact, vanity is repeated 40 times throughout these 12 chapters of this, excuse me, throughout this book. 40 times. And the word vanity, if you get a chance type in on YouTube, Bible Project, and look up Ecclesiastes, they talk all about this. The word for vanity is Hevel. What's the idea behind Hevel? Hevel is the moment a child first sees smoke floating by, and they reach out to grab onto it and find themselves with nothing Hevel is the moment where you see some bubbles at the circus floating down the sidewalk and you can't help yourself even though you're 30 years old and you gotta try to grab it. And the moment you touch that bubble, ah, Hevel. Or Hevel's when you... Speaking of circuses, grab that voluptuous piece of cotton candy and you sink your teeth into it and find that there's nothing even there. That is Hevel. Hevel, some translations translate it meaningless. And this preacher comes on the scene and he says, meaningless. Vanity. All is vanity. And this guy is struggling. He's struggling. He's struggling to find satisfaction in life. And if you, Ecclesiastes is a very tough book to outline as well, but if you step into the second chapter, you'll see. uh, There's a laundry list of things that this guy says, the preacher says, I looked for satisfaction everywhere. I looked for satisfaction in relationships because who at one point or another in their life doesn't think that a relationship is going to make them happy. And what I found is emptiness when I got there. He's very forthright and honest. This is a well-to-do man. He has everything that the world values. And he says, when I didn't find it in, in relationships, I went to concubines. I went to prostitutes, and I looked for my fulfillment in sex. And what I found? Vanity. And so I began to look for my satisfaction in money, and it wasn't much different than Rockefeller when they asked him how much money is enough, and he said, just a little more. He says, I looked for it in money, and all I found was emptiness. And so I stepped into looking for it other places. I looked for it in music, in the arts. Maybe if I can become a well-cultured person, I'll find some sort of satisfaction. But when the lights go down, and it's curtains, and you're sitting there in the dark, all he found was hell. and he looks for it in alcohol, in partying, in living the lavish lifestyle, in time after time after time, forty times, vanity, vanity, vanity. This is a man who is struggling to find satisfaction. He's struggling to find purpose, purpose. He says, "I, I, I gave myself to building projects because I thought if if I can make something great and have my name stamped on it, it'll mean something." But what he finds, he says. Even if I do great things here, the generation that follows after me is going to forget about me altogether. And even if they do great things, the generation that follows after them, they're going to forget what the previous generations did before them. And it's heaven. And he looks for it. He says, "I gave myself to wisdom, man. I thought maybe if I look for it—excuse me, maybe if I look for it in wisdom, I can find some sort of purpose." And he said it made me depressed. The wise, he says, I was wiser than anybody in Israel or Jerusalem, and I, I was just depressed. And he looks for it in all these different places, and all he finds is hevel, hevel, hevel. And another interesting thing I find about this is this is a man with a distorted view of life. Listen to some of the verses. Listen to some of the things the preacher says to us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I'll read it to you, but just try to key in here. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, with man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of a man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and no man has advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better that man should rejoice in than his work, for that's his lot. Listen to what chapter 7 says, verse 16. Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And if that doesn't get you, listen to chapter 9, verse 8. It says this. And I read this, and, and, and this is what really rocked me when I was reading this book. Because all my life, I can remember sitting at Grace Christian School uh, hearing a sermon on Ecclesiastes. And the way that Ecclesiastes was taught to me was that this is a message from the heart of God. Now, I want everybody to put on your critical thinking hats right now because some of the things that I might say you might disagree with, and that's okay. And I hope you look at it it yourself and be like a Berean and really dig into it yourself. But I'm just going to put this out there for you. Sam's getting nervous. It's okay. (laughs) I don't believe that Ecclesiastes, The question that this raised in my mind was, how am I supposed to read the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay, because there's some things that are good, and there's some things that I don't understand. How do I read it? And forever, Ecclesiastes was taught to me that this was a word from the heart of God spoken through the preacher to us. I don't don't necessarily agree with that. Let me me say this. I'm going to repeat myself a couple times, which I hate it when preachers do, but I'm going to repeat it, so you make sure you grab it. I don't believe that Ecclesiastes is a message from the heart of God that he's pouring out through the preacher to us. What I do think is that Ecclesiastes is an example given to us from God as a man whose mind knows God, but whose heart is far from God. I'm going to say that one more time. Ecclesiastes is not a message from the heart of God spoken through the preacher to us. It's an example given to us by God of a man whose mind knows God, but whose heart is far from God. And the reason I say this is that, that is this. If you think that the message is a, it's a thus saith the Lord book, then you have to do some theological sort of hoop jumping to try to get around why God is telling us that we're all going to go to Sheol, And you have to do some hoop jumping to try to figure out why he associates righteousness and wisdom with destruction of yourself. And you have to do some hoop jumping to try to figure out why he says that there's no difference between the beast of the field and us. But if you view it as an example given to us of a man whose mind knows God but whose heart is far from God, it allows you to look at it slightly differently. You can say, ha, look at the... Good things he says because he does say a lot of good things. There's this passage in chapter four where he says, Just close your mouth when you're before the Lord. It's better to say too little before the Lord than too much. He says, Fear God. He tells us, Fear Him. At the end, the narrator sort of sums up what he believes the preacher's kind of whole thing is, and he says, There's a lot of vanity in this world, but the whole, all of man is this, fear God and keep his commandments. He says a lot of great things, and then he says a lot of troubling things, and if you view it as an example to us, as a man whose mind knows God, but whose heart is far from God, it allows us to look at this and say, hey, learn from his example. Because I've known lots of people whose mind have known God, but whose heart was far from them, and they get mixed up, and they struggle a lot. Like I believe, this preacher is doing, and if you read through Ecclesiastes, you sense, you feel the struggle that he's in. Kind of reminds me of when I was like 10 years old, and at that point, the coolest person in my extended family was Uncle Tommy, because Uncle Tommy was this guy from Hawaii, and he had long hair before long hair was cool, but it was cool for us because we're like, dude, Tom's got long hair, and he was like, he was always on the, in the ocean, and we just thought he was so cool. And he lived down in LA, but he grew up in Hawaii. And 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 I remember going down to LA. We went to Disneyland, and he met up with us, and it, I was shocked because he had taken up smoking. And to me, like a ten-year-old, smoking was the equivalent of like crack or some terrible drug. And I was like, oh, Uncle Tom's smoking. And I'll never forget. We we're in the in the uh, parking garage, and we were waiting for some people to get there. And he pulls out his pack of cigarettes, pulls out a cigarette, and he lights it up. And as he's lighting it up, he looks at my brother and I, and he says, boys, don't smoke. It's bad for your health. And he puffs one down. You see, his mind knew the reality, but his heart wasn't there yet. I believe that when we look at Ecclesiastes, we see a man who says a lot of great things, but he also says a lot of troubling things. And as we look at it, we can see, wow, look what happens to a person when their heart isn't there. May we be guarded and careful with our hearts because when the heart isn't connected to the Lord, things fall apart and you begin to struggle to find satisfaction. You begin to struggle to find purpose. But what I love more than anything about Ecclesiastes is, well, let me get to that. I gotta give the author some credit because he's completely honest. This book is very un-American we like happy stuff. This book is not. This book makes me want to go get my Prozac out, okay? This book is very, sounds very existentialist, but he's completely honest with his feelings. And he just asks the questions, and he spills it out there. And this is why I love Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes asks the questions that Jesus answers. Ecclesiastes asks the questions that Jesus answers. Where can I find satisfaction? Where can I find purpose? And Jesus says, I am bringing the kingdom of God, not only to earth, but I'm bringing the kingdom of God to dwell in your hearts, that you might be filled to overflowing, that you might have life and life abundantly, and you'll find your satisfaction there. You'll find your purpose there. And you will bring, he will bring, the kingdom of God will bring meaning to the menial things of life that the preacher searched for meaning in and couldn't find. And I wish I had more time to go into that, but we don't, so we're gonna pray. Father, uh, even as somebody that fears you and loves you, I still struggle with Hevel. I still find a tendency to look for satisfaction in things that my mind knows is empty, but Lord, sometimes my heart's slow to follow. I pray that we would be a church who has mind and heart, whose mind understands the realities that you say and whose heart follows soon after because we know that there's blessing there and we know that there's goodness there. Father, I just pray that we would move beyond the hevel of our lives and find ourselves being consumed with the kingdom of God in our lives because ultimately it's there that we'll find satisfaction and purpose. And Father, uh, I just thank you that you didn't leave the questions of Ecclesiastes unanswered. So we pray that you would be glorified in this time, give application to these. Father, I pray that everybody has walked away knowing these books a little better, that they'll walk away being inspired by the spirit to look into some of these more and also that they will see clearly the way that these books point to Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys, have a good night.